Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome, everybody. Anybody here for the first time tonight? Some new faces. Welcome to all of you. Welcome back to everyone else. Welcome to anybody joining us on Zoom for the first time. I'd like to begin class by uh, asking you to talk to each other in service of uh, meeting people, connecting, uh, a core tenant, a core principle of Buddhism is um, community and, and the relational aspect of being mindful and uh, listening and talking and, and connecting. So, so much about of what Buddhism is, is about learning to connect with ourselves mindfully, connect with each other, be present. Tonight, I'm going to talk about how <clears throat> Buddhism, the Buddha's teachings, the path, what we call the middle path, is meant to be practiced in every aspect of our life. Nothing outside of our mindful awareness of our intention to be kind, to be compassionate, to be non-attached. Every aspect, our sexuality, our relationships, our relationship to money, our relationship to work, responsibility our relationship to the world, politics, all the intention is that we bring this practice and these wisdom perspectives to every single aspect of our life. Now, if you're new, you might not quite know the answer to this question yet, <clears throat> but my question for you to discuss in small groups is what area of your life do you find it most difficult to practice? to be mindful, to stay present? What, what activities in your life do you feel like, ooh, I'm just, it's so difficult to stay present in at work or in my relationships or when I'm masturbating or when I'm whatever it is, what, where, what kind of, or where is it difficult to stay kind, to stay compassionate, to stay loving, forgiving? Uh, when you are looking at social media and you see the political bullshit that you disagree with, not the not the bullshit that you agree with, but the stuff that you think is bullshit. And uh, can you bring kindness? Can you bring compassion, acceptance, forgiveness? Because truly, and I'll, I'm going to talk about this after the meditation. Every aspect of our life, from uh, you know sitting on the toilet and taking a shit mindfully, present. Are you one of those people that can't be present when you're pooping? You have to look at your phone. You have to read something. You have to get out of there as soon as possible. Or are you a long pooper? <laughs> Just hang out, read the paper, totally present with the stench. No courtesy flush. Every aspect. So um, hopefully that gives you something. In these small groups, um, you know, really you just kind of check in for a minute or so. Um, we take, you know, five, seven minutes or so, and groups of two or three is good. 
And at home, I'll put you in breakout rooms so you can talk to each other. Uh, but here, just try to find two or three people in the room that you don't know yet, so that you meet somebody and you discuss some of the areas of your life that you find it challenging to stay present or to stay kind. So we'll offer some meditation instructions. We'll do a sitting meditation for about 30 minutes. Um, if you're new and you think, oh, that's a long time, um, it is. <laughs> but also not really and and having the energy of you know 40 people in here and 50 people online with us meditating together kind of draws you through it so find a way first instruction for meditation is to find a way to sit that's upright but also relaxed find a way to be in the chair or on the cushion where you're sitting up straight your feet are on the ground or your hands are resting in your lap on your legs, a position that feels sustainable, effortless to begin with. And as you're ready, allowing your eyes to be closed. Taking a few moments as you settle into the posture to release any unnecessary tension, soften the brow, the jaw, shoulders. Any places in your body that you clench, that you hold tension, see if you can soften. Breathing in. Feel the sensations that the breath creates at the nostrils. Breathing out, see if you can soften your belly, relax your stomach. Bringing an attitude of kindness, patience, friendliness into your mind, your heart, your body. Establishing mindfulness, present time, awareness with a quality of non-judgmental investigation, bringing our attention to what's happening in the present, what sensations, emotions, sounds are here, without judging any of it as good or bad, right or wrong.
the Buddha's initial meditation instruction was something like breathing in, know that you're breathing in. Breathing out, know that you're breathing out. We call it mindfulness of breathing. What allows you, what notifies you, what informs you whether the breath is coming or going. Giving your full attention to the sensations that the breath creates. And letting everything else be in the background for now. Disengaging from the thinking mind. Fully engaging with the feeling body. Paying close attention to the sensations of the breath. When we get involved in thinking, just become aware, name it, thinking again about the future or the past. And then choose to disengage, come back to the breath with this attitude of kindness, of patience and tolerance. Start over, come back to the next breath as many times as you need to.
And if you notice tension in your belly or your shoulders, your jaw, consciously release, soften the jaw, soften the belly. brand new to this kind of meditation let the breath be the primary practice keep coming back keep trying to ignore what your mind wants to think about keep coming back to the body sitting breathing not trying to stop the mind but we are trying to stop being so identified so involved with our thoughts Letting them be in the background. The Buddha's instructions expand from the narrow focus on the breath, inviting us to bring this present time non judgmental kind awareness to our whole body. Hands and feet and arms and legs, trunk of the body. As well as the sense doors, sound, sight, smell, taste. And the mind has another sense door, the thoughts, the emotions, 
also a way of knowing, of experiencing both our inner and outer world. If we pay close attention to our experience, we start to see the truth of impermanence, how everything, each breath, each sensation, each sound, every thought is arising and passing, is in a process of change. We come to know that some of our experience is perceived as pleasant, some as unpleasant, some as neutral. So as you pay attention to the sensations, the emotions, the sounds, the thoughts that come and go as you sit here, investigating the feeling tone, what's pleasant in your direct experience here and now, if anything, what is unpleasant and what is neutral and how is it all changing moment to moment?
awareness of our pain, the unpleasant sensations, thoughts, feelings. Teaches us to become more tolerant, more accepting, and ultimately compassionate. Rather than running from our pain, we turn towards it. Bringing the conscious intention to be friendly towards your own discomfort. Likewise, in our relationship to the pleasant, this mind-body that we're born into that has repetitive cravings for pleasure. A completely impersonal survival instinct. That's almost always suggesting that life should be more pleasant than it is. We incline the mind to let go, to relinquish the craving, the clinging, the attachment to things being different than they are. Mindfulness teaching us to meet the impermanent pleasant experiences with non-attached appreciation.
experiment with making more space for your sensations, your emotions, your thoughts. We can get so myopic, so focused, so obsessed with what's happening. Try to make more room for it. Let the thoughts float more freely in an open awareness. Let the sensations arise and pass. Just as the breath comes and goes, all by itself, the heart beats, all by itself, the mind continues to think. breaking our addiction, our identification to the thinking mind. Tomorrow morning, I, my wife and I are leaving for a, a trip to Thailand where we're meeting 35 members of, of our community, the Against the Stream Sangha for a 10-day uh, pilgrimage to the Thai forest monasteries and uh, meditation centers and some ancient ruins and when we're going to be 
traveling together in a big bus with 35 Buddhists. Um, and so I was just thinking about how, I think I was sort of psyching myself up for like the bus rides are also part of our practice. We're, we're gonna have some time in retreat. We're gonna have some time with some monks. We're gonna have some, and, and so easy to think about like meditation is like when you're sitting in meditation, that's the real practice and create almost a, um, a bias towards like sitting meditation is the real thing, but like being on the bus, that's just unpleasant. Or maybe it isn't, maybe it's gonna be really fun. I don't know. Might be a fucking party bus, I don't know. Um, and that, that my understanding of you know what the Buddha was trying to teach us was to become mindful, to become present, to become wise in every aspect of our life, not just in sitting meditation, not just when we're on retreat or just when we're at the monastery or the temple or just with our Buddhist or wise friends, but in every aspect of our life. The Eightfold Path is inclusive of uh, everything and um, you know, so you know, overview. For, I know there's a bunch of new people. The Buddha's core teachings start with uh, an acknowledgement of the suffering that is part of life. That there's an uh, a natural, not your fault aspect of uh, difficulty and suffering that just comes with birth. If you're a human being, probably. All, all living beings, animals too. They're just, they're suffering. And it's not like it's suffering all of the time, but there's some suffering that just goes with like having a nervous system and having a mind and having memory and a sense of self and that kind of I, me, mind. There's just some levels of suffering. And the Buddha called it dukkha. And first noble truth. And the second noble truth, he said, the primary cause of our suffering is craving is a repetitive, uh, you, heard me, you heard me in the meditation instruction, there's this situation that we're all in where your mind and your body have this consistent message of you'd be happier if this were more pleasant or less unpleasant. And it's just the norm where we all live with that mentality. This is too unpleasant to be happy within and it's not pleasant enough. And even have you seen your mind to do that, even when things are going well and they're pleasant, where your mind will still say, yeah, but it could be better. This is pretty good, but more hot sauce would make it better <laughs> or more salt or more something that make it more delicious or more, even in meditation, did your mind tell you like, yeah, if I was comfortable if these, old ass chairs weren't so uncomfortable or if my body you know uh, then i'd be happy if it was more pleasant it was more comfortable so the second truth you know the buddha is saying the cause of all of our unhappiness is because we're not accepting life as it is there's this constant impersonal i want it to be more pleasant i want it to be less unpleasant i don't know how to deal with all of this pain 
I don't know how to deal, not only my own pain, but all this pain in the world, all this ignorance and oppression and confusion that is all around us. And then the third truth is the carrot, it's the promise. It's, it's possible in this lifetime through your own actions, your own effort, your own meditative training and renunciation and way of life. It's possible to end all of the suffering in your life. And what a tall, what, you know, what a, a massive promise. So optimistic, so empowering through your own actions, through your own effort in this life, no divine intervention, no, you know, grace of some guru or, you know, nothing outside of yourself, just through your own actions in this lifetime. If you follow this eightfold path, you can free yourself from suffering. This is the whole, you know, teaching of the Buddha. And the eightfold path, which uh, says, okay, part of this is going to be mindfulness. A core part of learning to free ourselves from suffering is present time, non-judgmental, kind awareness. Learning to be present with what is, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Like right now, the temperature in this room. Maybe some of you feel like, oh, that's nice, the AC. Some of you I can see are like, oof, unpleasant, it's cold. Learning to be at ease, learning to accept whether we're hot, we're cold, we're comfortable, we're uncomfortable. Even we're, you know, experiencing joy or we're experiencing sadness, even the unpleasant afflictive emotions as part of our mindfulness, present time, non-judgmental, kind awareness that knows what's happening and how it feels and starts to learn how to, you know, you know, takes a while to first just get present, pay attention to the breath, start breaking our addiction to believing our minds all of the time, obeying our minds. For me, I started meditating 35 years ago and um, I was a teenager and I was a drug addict and I was incarcerated when I started meditating. And I sat in this jail cell and somebody, my father gave me these simple pay attention to your breath instructions. And it was the first time in my life that I wasn't like, you know, tripping on acid or something where I had a relationship to my mind where I saw, oh, I can choose to ignore my mind and pay attention, breathing in, breathing out. And I, it was like this so uh, it was a revelation to me that I didn't have to obey my mind and that I could defy it and say, not now, and go back to my breath and go back to my breath. Even though my mind was in judgment and anger and craving and fear and despair, all of those difficult things, that ability to say, okay, I hear you and breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out. I don't know about you, but before I had that experience, I didn't, I spent the first half of my life listening to my mind and believing it and obeying it. And it gave me terrible advice. But I just thought, you know, it's, well, it's what I'm thinking and feeling. So it's who I am. And part of what mindfulness begins to teach us is that uh, we don't have to obey our minds all of the time and that, you know, 
they often aren't giving us very good advice. They often aren't are misleading us, aren't directing us towards happiness, but are directing us towards craving and aversion and judgment and anger and causes of suffering. So mindfulness as, as a core foundation, and we, we learn mindfulness in sitting meditation. And it's very important sitting, I think, I don't, you can't skip the discipline of sitting down and training your mind on this path. But it's not all of it, you know, where I started. It's not the only time that we're training is in sitting meditation. We, we sit and we pay attention to our breath and we investigate the feeling tones and we investigate our mind. And there's a, a, a gradual shift that happens, an awakening process that happens through the sitting meditation. But in the four foundations of mindfulness, the Buddha says, sit down, I gave you the initial instructions that sit down, find a place to sit and breathing in, know that you're breathing in. And then he says, now pay attention to the rest of the sensations in your body. Pay attention to the body as the four elements. Pay attention to the anatomy, the 32 parts of the body. Pay attention to the impermanent nature of the body itself, subject to sickness, aging, and death. He says, investigate the feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Investigate, bring mindfulness to your, to your thoughts, to your mind states, to your emotions. So what's true about your experience, the whole, and in this way, it's inclusive. There's nothing outside of our mindfulness practice. Everything we think, everything we feel, everything we smell, everything we taste, everything we see. Every emotion, part of our mindfulness practice. Now, after giving, and this is all, you know, in the formal sitting meditation. And then there's a, a section in the teaching after that, where the Buddha says, now, uh, not only do this sitting, he says, do this in four formal practices, train yourself to be mindful of your sensations, your emotions, your thoughts, your sense doors, what you're seeing, and whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, what you're hearing, and whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, what you're smelling, tasting, what what's the experience and is it what's the feeling tone and then we start to see oh and i have i suffer about unpleasant smells i suffer about i hate unpleasant sounds i suffer i create suffering around unpleasantness because of the aversion or i create suffering around pleasantness because i get addicted to it because i cling to it i get attached i want more none of us are very good at non-attached appreciation oh that was really pleasant and it's just arising and passing we're all like oh i want to fucking take that hostage that's good i want it How can i smoke it <laughs> so he says four postures he says do this in sitting do this when you're standing, do this when you're walking, and do this when you're laying down. So not just sitting meditation, reclining, laying down meditation, walking meditation. I don't know how many of you have been on a meditation retreat yet, but one of the wonderful 
things about coming on a meditation retreat is you get the experience of doing a lot of sitting and then we alternate the sitting with walking practice sit walk sit walk and it helps us integrate present time non-judgmental kind investigative awareness into activity probably all of you have probably done yoga at some point similar that using the present time awareness mindfulness in the body in different postures not just sitting still and there's a line there where the buddha says bring this awareness sati mindfulness to every activity not just the four postures every activity of your body everything that we do and this is you know my kind of main point tonight everything is part of our practice there's nothing that's outside of our practice it's not just sitting meditation everything that we speak so then when we look at the eightfold path right speech right action right livelihood the buddha addresses uh, how to live a life where we're not creating negative karma and how we're communicating we're not creating negative karma and how we're uh, earning money. We could take that also to how we're spending money, how we're relating to money. How much of your suffering comes around money? In the uh, actions, he talks about a wise relationship to sexuality. How much of your suffering comes around sex, relationships, attachment, craving, clinging, addiction? nothing outside of i heard once time i heard Thich Nhat han was a vietnamese zen master um who i got to spend time with and do a retreat with and listen to a bunch and um one time i went and saw him in pasadena this is a long time ago maybe over 15 years ago and he gave most of his Dharma talk about mindful pooping. <laughs> and about, you know, like we can't, we, it's not, you have to bring mindfulness with you onto the toilet and into your relationship to defecation and uh, the unpleasant smell, if you perceive your own poop as unpleasant, but that it's not this kind of fragile thing where uh, our spiritual practice, our mindfulness, uh is separate from you know also masturbation uh all of the activities of the body sex mindful sex so there's a you know the interesting thing here think of all of your activities and just put mindful before it mindful driving mindfully brushing your teeth mindfully doing your dishes mindfully folding your clothes mindfully pooping mindfully masturbating mindfully having sex mindfully talking listening walking down the street being in a bus with 35 buddhists mindful practice everybody you know every aspect rather than yeah when i go to the meditation center or when i go on retreat or when i hit my cushion in the morning that's when i'm mindful often when i'm teaching a retreat i'll, I'll ask everybody on the retreat to um when you wake up in the morning, bring your attention immediately to are you breathing in or are you breathing out? So I invite you to try this tomorrow morning. When you wake up, as soon as you wake up, do you wake up on the in breath or the out breath? 
And in that way, we are starting our practice. And it's, you know, the thing about my, it's like, it's so easy to say, but we are not naturally mindful, you know, against the stream, name of our center, flag I've been waving for a long time. Direct quote from the Buddha. He said, this path to be mindful, to be non-attached, to be compassionate, goes against our natural instinctual drives. It's not natural to be mindful. It takes effort, it takes training. It, 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 we're going against you know, the mind's tendency, which is a survival-based instinct to look out for you know, to what's pleasant and what's unpleasant and what's a threat. Do I, am I safe? Am I? So to be here, to be present and not listening to the worrying mind and the craving mind and the is abnormal. It's radical. It's against our, you know. You think we'll ever, humans will ever evolve enough to be mindful? I heard one teacher who was really into biological evolutionary or evolutionary biology. And he said, uh, he said, he, he says, maybe in, um, you know, so the Buddha is 2,600 years ago. Here we are, 2,600 years ago, still practicing this mindfulness technique that the Buddha created in India 2,600 years ago. Now, there's this really unfortunate reality. I think it's unfortunate. Maybe it's not. It's a judgment, I guess. That even though Buddhism became a world religion with billions of followers, it said like less than 10% of Buddhists actually meditate and practice mindfulness. And, you know, part of his perspective was, you know, maybe eventually uh, we'll evolve to like being born with mindfulness. And that our, uh, let's see, not ancestors, what are the future generations called? Our descendants, you know, and hundreds of years, thousands of years, will be born present and mindful. And they'll look back on us sitting there trying to pay attention to our breath, trying to be mindful. Like we look at like the Cro-Magnon, like cave people of like fire. <laughs> they will like, they'll look back at us and be like, mindfulness, trying to, oh, breathing in, breathing out. They'll just be like, those fucking idiots <laughs> didn't even know how to be present. Now we're just born with like normalizing presence. And, you know, maybe, I don't know if, you know, if we'll ever evolve, but the situation seems to be that uh, we're here in a place where it takes a lot of effort. You know, the third noble truth, you can free yourself from suffering in this lifetime. It's going to take a lot of intentional training of the mind to be present and to respond differently right because when you when you're mindful what do you see craving aversion self-centeredness fear you sit here and you're thinking about yourself and you're worrying about stuff and you know when you just watch the mind the mind is a clinging craving aversion judgmental the untrained mind and then as you meditate over the years, you start to see, oh, there's some wisdom here. I'm understanding impermanence. I'm, uh, I'm more compassionate. I'm more loving. I'm more forgiving. The, the environment, the inner environment starts to shift. But the untrained mind, 
don't think anybody's untrained mind is all that unattached or all that compassionate towards our own pain seems to be a skill that we have to develop. So my proposal is everything. Everything is part of our practice. Um, how we speak, how we listen, how we show up to work, how we treat people in traffic, how we treat people, you know, in the world, um, you know, your relationship to your phone, our relationships to, to social media, to your email. Like, are you bringing mindfulness to checking your email yet? Are you bringing mindfulness to Facebook or Instagram or present to the news? You watch the news mindfully with the intention to say, oh, that's really unpleasant news I'm receiving or, you know, this meme I'm looking at or this whatever it is with present time, non-judgmental kind with the intention to be compassionate to what we perceive as unpleasant in our social media scrolling or in our email checking or in our television or the radios and the podcast, whatever. <laughs> Anybody listen to the radio anymore? I still listen to NPR sometimes. So I asked you in the beginning to reflect on what are the difficult areas? Where is it hard to be mindful? So I want to open to some questions, some discussion about any aspect of, of Buddhism that you're interested in speaking about. Um, but again, with this perspective that it's our whole life, what we're being encouraged to practice is some level of renunciation. There's only five things that the Buddha says in order to get free, you need to abstain from. And that's killing, lying, stealing, sexual misconduct, and the use of intoxicants. Now, killing, lying, stealing, sexual misconduct create negative karma for us. Intoxicants don't necessarily, but intoxicants block our ability to be mindful. So you're not able to really do this path when you have a buzz or when you're strung out or you know even when you're microdosing whatever it is that you're into <laughs> it blocks the ability to be fully present um and so the buddha says you know be free from those uh substances that create heedlessness that block mindfulness anyways i'm that's that's what I want to say for, for now. Any questions, comments? If you have a question at home, you can raise your hand in the reactions tab at the bottom of Zoom or any, any questions from the room, comments, clarifications. Patricia, go for it. Hola, Maestro. Gracias. Nice, nice to see you. Nice to see you too. Um, so one of the parts that I, I have difficulty being mindful 
It's uh, when I'm driving. <laughs> um, but I just want to voice that. Um, I, I am really struggling right now with what is happening in the world, with the wars, um, genocides, etc. Um, when I hear you speak right now, I was thinking about that time that we were in Esalen and I asked you, well, how can I forgive, you know, like the narcos and all the people that create all the suffering in Mexico? And I'm still holding this pain. And it's, it's, I'm really, really struggling at this time, be, seeing all the injustice. And also after three years of um, working and understanding white supremacy. So can you please talk a little bit about uh, this or some sort of comment? I would appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Could everybody hear the question? So the, and you're somewhat aware of this, um, Patricia, and for those of you who aren't, you know, the Buddha's worldview, you know, so I, I gave you the third noble truth, very optimistic, all living beings have the ability, the potential to free themselves from suffering. And this was, you know, this is the Buddha's message. And he said, I did it. And if I can do it, we can all do it. It's, it takes a lot of work, but it's possible to get free, to become kind, to become compassionate. But also, he didn't seem very optimistic that everyone was going to do it. He seemed pretty um, convinced that it was going to be only a handful of people in each generation that would really develop the kind of wisdom and compassion to, to get free and uh, referred to our human realm, planet Earth, as samsara, as an, an experience of perpetual wandering through um, the experience of causing suffering and, and creating suffering and uh, experiencing suffering. I talked about this last week. I don't know if you were here or not. But even in the Buddha's lifetime, he lived in a very um, violent culture, and there was a lot of active um, war, a lot of battles happening, even uh, in his own family. His own family, there was a kind of genocide. His whole family was right, wiped out. His father was a king. His kingdom was overrun, was destroyed, was, everyone was murdered in the Buddha's family. And so he was quite intimate with the ignorance and corruption and violence and uh, of humans and you know we all can look at history it can feel you know, like when, when it's happening right now in palestine or in ukraine or in uh, uganda or you know wherever it's happening right now in the congo it can feel like whoa like this is crazy that it's happening right now but when we look at human history it's always happening it's always been happening. And so this is kind of the Buddha's understanding is like we live in a realm of hatred and ignorance. It's always been like this. Human beings, without training their mind to be kind, kind and compassionate, are violent beings. 
are, you know, tend towards oppression, tend towards greed, tend towards white supremacy and racism and, and deep, deep ignorance. Uh, and in order to unlearn all of that, it's a lot of work. It's hard work. And very few people in each generation are really willing to do the hard work. So I feel like part of what Buddhism does for me is that it normalizes the ignorance in the world, right? Because I'm with you 100% of it feels like injustice and it shouldn't be this way, right? It feels like, wow, this, like the world shouldn't be like this. Shouldn't be filled with war and ignorance and racism and sexism and homophobia and genocides and fucking shouldn't be like this but it is like this and it's kind of always been like this and it's just it's the way that it is so there's that level of acceptance and uh, not acceptance isn't sometimes acceptance can feel like complacency like just accept it and don't do anything about it but that's not what accepting like oh no this is really the way this is what planet earth is like this is what samsara is like it's a realm of greed hatred and delusion it's a realm of war and oppression and ignorance now within this world of war and oppression and ignorance there's a human capacity for love and compassion and forgiveness that is immense and that you know and so it's hard to hold both all living beings have the ability to free themselves from suffering and to accept very few are gonna and certainly uh freeing yourself from suffering uh doesn't you know um seem to be what's happening with those in power those who crave power who the politicians the warlords the you know, there's there's not a you know there's not a emphasis on compassion and kindness and nonviolence. There's a you know emphasis on creating empires and protecting empires and fighting you know all who are different, who are other, who are you know a threat in some way or another, real or imagined threat. So I don't know if that helps you, but it helps me to first normalize and be like, it's just the way it is here. And all of my ideas about it's wrong and it shouldn't be this way is more kind of second noble truth, craving for life to be more pleasant, for this world to be more peaceful, all of the way, because I can suffer about it. I spent a lot of my life suffering about the way that the world is. And then the Dharma is teaching us to accept well out of compassion working for a positive change not suffering about it not all of that it shouldn't be this way it is this way what can we do about it what can i do about it internally because i'm also you know conditioned with the racism and the homophobia and the all of that stuff growing up in this society that we end up internalizing and experiencing and how can I make a positive change from the inside out? How can I use my life to be of service? 
with some, you know, knowing like we're not going to stop the narcos. We're not going to stop what's happening in Israel and Palestine. We're not going to stop, but we can speak out against it. You know, like I'm, I think, you know, the Buddha did nonviolent protest quite a bit in his life. He was, a, you know, in, in a lot of ways, although he was a spiritual teacher and his primary uh, mission seemed to be to teach people how to free themselves from suffering. He also went onto the front lines in protest against war. He was, a, he was an anti-war activist. There's several times in the Buddha's life where it talks about him, you know, out there protesting war, trying to speak to those in power about the importance of nonviolence and about the karma and the ignorance that they were creating for themselves. So there's a place for action, not just complacency. I don't know if that's helpful or not, Patricia, but uh, that's how I make sense of it and how the Dharma helps me not suffer so much about the way it is. Gracias. It does help um, the clarity and the suffering. Uh, that's what I got. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Welcome. Good to see you. Anybody in the room, please? I've been trying to center on what I actually need. And my, my mind tells me I need a lot of things that I don't need. The renunciation part, the abstinence part, to me needs to be the first part to alleviate my, my suffering. I can't tell what I need unless I'm abstinent, unless I'm clear of mind. Because otherwise, it's just a chain reaction, dominoes falling about what I need, and I and I I'm starting to realize how little I need, but how little I really need each day to just to be alive. And counterintuitive it is for me to not be attached to things. So it, uh, I'm just lately starting to get a little different level of uh, awareness of it, and then. It, Slips away and some other need comes uh, encroaching in. But I guess what I'm asking is, how do you, do you have any trick for tricking your mind into just being quiet? <laughs> um, the core part of the question, the end, for those of you who maybe who couldn't hear it at home, was any tricks to tr tricking our minds into being quiet? Um, you know, if you meditate for longer periods of time with a, a strict kind of concentration focus, it will eventually quiet your mind. But what seems more important than quieting your mind is um, learning to tolerate your mind and just to not believe it. And even that thing about needs. Um, I'd imagine that probably, I don't know what the percentage is, but the vast majority, maybe even 90% of what the mind says you need are really just desires, wants. Very few of them are probably, you know, like, what do we really, you know, we need water. <laughs> you know, 
we you know we need, there's there's like a very short list of needs that we you know we need food and shelter and water and you know some connection with you know some healthy connections but most of the stuff that the mind's saying that we need is just desires that you know and 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 you know this we all know this satisfying your desires does it ever really work that's the thing about the second noble truth, the repetitive nature of craving. As soon as you get what you thought you needed, how long are you satisfied? How long until your mind is saying, you know what, that was good, but you know what I need now? I need more. I need different. I need. So trying to, you know, just like seeing like, oh, these are all just wants. And there's a difference between wanting and needing, and there's a difference between desire and craving. And being, you know, mindfulness starts to give us that discernment of like, oh, yeah, my mind's full of desire, but I don't need to satisfy these desires to be happy. I need kindness to be happy. I need non-attachment to be happy. I need to forgive myself and others to be happy. I don't need more stuff. I don't need more anything outside of myself i need healthy emotional uh and i you know and even that i need my mind to stop in order to be happy what a setup for misery because our minds don't stop i need to break my addiction to my mind i need to stop obeying my mind i need to have a wise relationship to the thinking mind to develop discernment in order to because it's going to keep going it's you heard me in the instructions tonight. Um, I don't know if you caught it or not, but I said something like, our lungs breathe all by themselves, our heart beats all by itself, and the mind thinks all by itself. And so with mindfulness, we start treating the thinking mind, third foundation of mindfulness, of like, oh, okay, just thoughts arising and passing, like my breath is coming and going. It's not that personal. It's not, I don't have to believe it and, and identify with it. You know, oh, judgment, fear, craving, need. <laughs> My mind's telling I need me, I need shit again. Big surprise. But it's not a trustworthy companion, <laughs> the needing mind. Not to be trusted most of the time. Some of the time. Sure. How do you find self-compassion? For example, I'm very great at compassionate for others, very good at kindness, like all of those things. Like when I took refuge in the Buddha, uh, the name I was given was Santem Prolang, which is after the, the two goddesses of compassion, the green and the white. But like when I look at myself to find kindness for me, I just can't, other than to do that for others. And that is the only time that I feel compassion for myself, when I do for others. Mm -hmm. I think I took selfless literal. Mm -hmm. That can be a trap to do too much externalizing, getting our self-esteem through. Um, so two main ways, the question about how do we develop self-compassion. One is that eventually, through a long-term mindfulness practice, the more we sit with ourselves and become intimate and, and kind of inclining the mind to being kind, to being friendly, 
just the mindfulness practice, the more we're bringing our awareness here, me, not always externalizing, always being of service to others, but more and more time and like I needed to sit with my thoughts and feelings and sensations. I one monk that I was talking to and he said, mindfulness itself, he said his, his experience was felt like he said, I felt like my heart was closed to myself kind of like this. He said, but the more I sat in mindfulness and did the four foundations, did Vipassana mindfulness practice, he said, it felt like there was a curtain, like a heavy curtain blocking my wise heart, and that the mindfulness itself drew the curtain back. And it wasn't through loving kindness and compassion practices. It was just mindfulness. Mindfulness drew the curtain back and let the compassionate heart shine. So part of it is long-term mindfulness practice turning inward turning inward what's that my, my mind has been silent for a very long time yeah Boucher did something i don't know we had a conversation and he put his forehead to mine and told me not to think and i just don't think anymore so all i speak is from consciousness so that's a little difficult but if you say mindfulness practice would be helpful and i'll give that a try mindfulness is central then the other piece you know one time when the buddha was asked this he said um one of the ways that it works is that the mind the heart the mind is like a soft stone and when you say the phrases like if you're doing tibetan practice if you say those phrases in our theravadan tradition we say loving kindness may i be happy may i be at ease may i be free from suffering or we do self-forgiveness i forgive myself as much as i can in this moment or we do um uh, the compassion practice, may I be filled with mercy and compassion towards myself as well as others. So just saying those phrases, he says, when you repeat those phrases, it's like dropping water on a soft stone. And if you do it over and over, so, you know, like, may I meet myself with compassion, right? That's your simple desire. May I meet myself with compassion? Say that over and over and say that every day, as many times a day as you can in your mind place that thought in your meditation and see, you know, do that every day for, let's say 10 years. <laughs> do it every day for 10 years. And if you do it every day for 10 years, that same spot, that same thought, that same, you'll create a groove, you'll create a habit in your mind to be kind to yourself. The untrained mind is not very kind to ourselves, not very compassionate to, it's not necessary part of our survival instinct, something that we have to develop self-compassion. Um, but the, one of the reasons I like that answer from the Buddha is that he knew about neuroplasticity and neuropathways. If you train your mind by repeating the neurons that fire together, wire together. So when we live in fear and self-centeredness, that's our whole mentality. But when we start to train our mind towards compassion for ourselves, towards kindness, towards loving, you know, forgiveness, it starts to create a habit in your brain to be kind to yourself, to be compassionate. And it's one of the reasons why, like in the Tibetan Buddhist practice, there's a thousand and eight mantra recitations. And, you know, they're because they're training their mind in compassionate mantras whether it's the Tara mantras or the Om Mani Padme Hum, or you know, all of those practices are creating neuropathways of wisdom. Yeah. 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 Well, the way, the way in some of the Tibetan stuff can be a little, I'm gonna save all living beings, I'm a bodhisattva. 
but even if we do that, if we say all living beings, then we just have to remember I'm part of the all. It's not all others. I don't think there's anywhere, even in the Tibetan Bodhisattva stuff, where it's like, I'm going to save others. It's all inclusive, including ourselves. I'm part of this life, this web of existence. Please. How can I implement mindfulness when it comes to like PTSD and flashbacks? I'd have to hear a little bit more about it to give you a good answer, but I'll give you a general one. About kind of the nature of the triggers and flashbacks and but okay this might be triggering for others but i got kidnapped last year Mm -hmm. um by someone i knew i and i went to the hospital and they found internal injuries so every day i live in fear and that day just repeats in my head yeah so let me just Mindfulness will help one in just kind of disengaging from that repetitive memory, that traumatic repetitive memory. So some of it is just going to be here, coming back. Okay, I'm remembering that again, coming back. I'm here, I'm in my body, back to the breath, back to feeling my body in the chair. So that's going to help some. And then at some point, you're going to turn towards your mind and know, oh, this is just a memory. It's on very unpleasant memory. There's trauma associated with it. Certain situations bring up that fear, bring up that trigger. But mindfulness will eventually change your relationship to it where you'll see it as a painful memory. I don't know, um, are you, you know about EMDR? I'm actually starting that. Starting EMDR. So one of the core things I said earlier in, in our Buddhist practice, we do sitting meditation on retreat, then we do walking meditation. In walking meditation, you bring mindfulness to your left foot and then your right foot, and then your left foot, and then your right foot. And it's bilateral attention. Uh, EMDR's perspective is that we hold traumatic memories in our amygdala, that fight or flight brainstem. Mindfulness going back and forth, left, right, has the same effect or similar as what the EMDR therapy is doing where you're following the eye movement back and forth. It's bilateral attention. So sometimes you'll do it in sitting meditation. Maybe you'll get a bit flooded sometimes if you're new to sitting meditation. Then try walking meditation. Right, left, right, left, right, which will, and I like that EMDR admits this because I feel like it's very much what Buddhism says is that we're not going to get rid of our pain. We're not going to get rid of our painful memories. We're not going to get rid of our trauma or remembering the traumatic experiences we've had. But we can shift it from something that is overwhelming us to just a painful memory, from the amygdala to the neocortex or the frontal lobe, wherever it's supposed to live as a painful memory. The same thing with you know the end of suffering. Buddhism says the end of suffering. It nowhere says the end of pain. And we can conflate pain and suffering. We can heal and have compassion and wisdom and to the point, but we're still going to remember our painful past, but we can change our relationship to it. So we meet it with compassion and we see it for what it is. These are memories. There's not, I'm not there because we can, I'm not there anymore. I'm here. Mindfulness mantra is here right now, breathing in, 
breathing out. Right foot, left foot. So those practices will help. You're welcome. I think we'll actually end there. It's about it's about time. Um, we'll be gone for the next two Mondays, but you have a wonderful substitute teacher, Jeff Camozzi uh, and his wife Emily um, will be here. He's the one that runs the Zoom for me. They're going to be here. Jeff's going to teach both both uh, Mondays while I'm out of town, and then I'll be back uh, in three weeks. So come to class. Remember, you don't come for the teacher, you come for the Sangha. Come sit with each other, but also come for the teacher. Jeff's a good teacher. It's interesting to hear some different perspectives. So uh, I hope that you make it the next couple Mondays and I'll see you uh, if we make it back from this <laughs> pilgrimage. Um, class is done by donation. Against the Stream is a nonprofit that is fully supported by your voluntary contributions by your generosity so please be as generous as you can um i don't have anybody at the desk tonight but you put money in the bowl uh, if you have cash suggested donation is 25 bucks if you can do that um, or there's a venmo qr code over there if you want to venmo or paypal you can donate that way if you're at home there's a um i think a qr code going into the chat if you can donate online, if not, just go to the Against the Stream website and um, announcements. New Year's Eve is open for registration. I'm doing the 18th annual Los Angeles New Year's Eve uh, intention setting ceremony. Uh, so join us. There's info on the againstthestream.com website. Good to see everybody. Many goodness, any merit that is developed from our practice and discussion of the Buddha Dharma be shared with each other and be shared outward in all directions. May each one of us get as free as we can. And together, may we create a positive change on this planet. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.